Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unconventional OT. This is a podcast run by two OTD students who are dedicated to advocacy. On this podcast, we will interview OTs who are bringing innovation to life, overcoming barriers, and practicing in non-traditional areas. This podcast is intended to be used as a complimentary tool for the website unconventionalot.com. The website provides resources and guidance to help reduce some of the preparatory work required for beginning to practice in non-traditional areas. Both the podcast and the website are components of a capstone project and will continue to be developed over time. The views of this podcast should be considered our own and are intended for educational purposes only. At times, this podcast may discuss topics that are not appropriate for children, so listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Jess. Welcome back to Unconventional OT. Today, we have occupational therapist Melanie Higgins with us to discuss occupational therapy's role in the acute behavioral health setting. Thank you for agreeing to speak with us, Ms. Higgins, and welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and help in any way that I can. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really excited to learn about this topic. Can you please tell us just a little bit about yourself and your professional background? Yes, I've been an occupational therapist for over 20 years. I started off back when it was just a bachelor's degree, and then I did go on to get a master's of health science in OT. I'm also a certified yoga teacher, and that's something I use a lot in all of the settings I've worked, but especially now. Um, Throughout my career, I've worked with from pediatrics to seniors and inpatient, outpatient, um, a variety of settings, school-based, a really interesting reintegration program for people who'd been had TBIs or spinal cord injuries. So I've, I've done a lot of different things. All right. So, well, I'd really love to start off by learning a little bit about the population that you serve. Mm-hmm. Um, so I work in an acute inpatient behavioral health unit at a large hospital. We actually have two different units. Um, there's an adult unit and then a geriatric unit. Um, so on the adult unit, um, it's basically 18, from ages 18 up, and it can be any type of mental health diagnosis and something that is of an acute nature, you know, something where whatever it is, the person could be at harm to themselves or someone else. Um, and then on the senior side, it's not always, but it's typically, um, we have a lot of people with dementia, with behavioral problems, um, but then we also have people who have had mental health issues their whole life that are now, you know, um, aging into the senior population. So it's a little, it's both units are very diverse in what we see. And as well, as far as um, diversity from um, all walks of life, we have from homeless people to people who run big, huge corporations and everybody in between. Okay, interesting. And about how many uh, people are generally on your caseload at a time? Well, we don't have specific individual caseloads. Um, I there's on the therapy in the therapy department. There's two occupational therapists, a CODA, rec therapy, and art therapy, and I sort of job share with the other OT. So we all um, are working with all the patients because most of us are also part time. So we're just kind of jumping in. But we just opened all three pods after two years of reconstruction. And so now I think we have a total of, we can have up to 37 patients total between the two units. Okay. Or census, I should say, not necessarily a caseload, but census. Okay. Wow. So can you describe the environment and the setup of your unit? Yeah, it's pretty interesting if you've never been onto a locked unit, but it is a locked unit, um, you know, lots of keys and passwords to get from one room to another. Like I mentioned, there's three pods, one for the seniors, one for the adults. And then the, our newest pod is um, an intensive behavioral unit. Everything is locked down. Everything has to be ligature resistant. And there's limited materials that we can have on the unit. You know, anything that could be used to hurt yourself or someone else cannot be out on the unit. And unfortunately, right now with COVID, we're even more limited on the supplies we can have out just because of, you know, um, not wanting to spread germs. 
So unfortunately, there's very few things we can have out for patients to access on their own. Um, and it's a great team that I work with. Like I mentioned, the other um, disciplines of therapy, but there's also social work, um, RNs, psychiatrists, hospitalists, PCAs. And then we do not have physical therapy on our unit, but we have um, physical therapies from the hospital physical therapists from the hospital that do come up and work with many of our seniors. So I usually coordinate that and um, co-treat with PTs when they come to see the seniors. Oh, okay. So it sounds like you guys have a pretty comprehensive team. Yeah. And I actually have been on a lockdown unit um, <laughs> a few times, but my experience is very limited, but you're right. It is very interesting. Uh, the atmosphere is starkly different than, mm -hmm. you know, in the general hospital part of it. Yes. Like you said, yes. a lot of keys, a lot of doors, um, a lot of protective measures put in place. Right. Um, I remember when we went out in the area where we did a little bit of occupational therapy, I went to move a piece of furniture and the, the outdoor furniture was like 200 pounds, you know, and it was yes. all for safety reasons, you know, so that they couldn't be used as a weapon or anything. But I just remember like taking in all of those differences and just being like, wow, this does create quite a different environment, right. not only for us as therapists or students, but also uh, for the clients that are there receiving care. Yes. And so, yeah, with furniture, furniture is either bolted down or very heavy. And we still have had patients who try to pick up the very heavy furniture to try to throw it through windows. However, the, the windows are unbreakable also. And um, it, that can also, as you can imagine, cause a lot of difficulty on our, with our seniors to have everything so ligature resistant and they're not able to have like their walkers or their canes with them independently, typically. Um, in some cases they can. And, you know, the, you know, the faucets that are automatic, you push the button and then you leave it running. Just think how difficult that is for some of our senior patients who are in an unfamiliar environment. Something's going on with them um, and maybe they have vision problems or fine motor problems. It's just very difficult for can be very difficult for them to function in. So as the OT, that's something we have to look a lot like how can we make keep this person functioning as best they can in this not only an unfamiliar environment, but a very odd environment. Sure. Yeah. I'm actually just now thinking like how challenging it could be for some of the seniors with needing to get in and out of because in the main hospital, you know, you think about, okay, you rise the bed to the appropriate height in order mm -hmm. to help you know, facilitate them getting um, in or sitting down safely. And so with it being locked down, that's not really an option then, is it? Well, on our, the, our, the senior beds are actually all, a modified version of hospital beds. They're ligature resistant hospital beds, but they do, and they are still bolted to the floor. You can't roll them anywhere, but they do, um, you know, rise and lower the head and the, it's adjustable. The head goes up, the legs go up. So the senior beds are more typical of a hospital bed, but they're still, they look different. They're ligature resistant, but yes, th that would be much worse if they had the bolted down platform beds. Right, right. Okay, well, that's good to know. That's something I was not aware of. Uh, so, okay. Uh, so what about the different type of emissions that take place? And how long do individuals typically stay? Um, admission, our admissions could be voluntary or involuntary. Um, some, many of our adult patients might come in with a 72-hour hold. Um, and once that 72 hours is up, then at that point, they either need to sign in or sign voluntary, I'm sorry, or it would need to be probated um, to, to stay in the hospital. Um, typically, the adults, it's a, they're all a matter of days, um, the length of stays, every once in a while, maybe weeks or months, but typically it's a matter of days because this is acute. We're just addressing the immediate acute situation. We wanna make sure they're not a harm to themselves or others. Typically the seniors may stay seven to 10 days and adults about five to seven days. So when an individual reaches the end of their 72 hours, do you give your like therapeutic recommendation to them and say, hey, like I really think you would benefit from staying or like how does that work? We, as the occupational therapists, we're not usually involved in that so much with the patient themselves. 
We do have interdisciplinary meeting every day, um, our rounds with the the psychiatrists and social work and the nurses, and we all give our input then, but it's usually, it's the doctor that's usually having that conversation with the patient um, about what they need to do to be able to leave, where they're at. Um, And that's typically the discharge planning in this kind of setting looks a little different and we're not typically involved directly with addressing that with the patient. That makes sense. So what are some common goals in acute behavioral health? Um, It can look, it can look different for everyone, you know, of course, just like anywhere. Um, It can look different from the adults to the seniors, but with the um, adults, we might be addressing coping skills. You know, if it's maybe someone who has depression and we're, we'll really focus on coping skills and um, just looking for stabilized cognitive behaviors. Um, we want, for seniors and adults, we want to make sure that they're safe, that they're not really a threat to themselves or others. So just focusing on coping skills, social skills. Um, and then also for the seniors, we definitely have functional goals. Um, we're, we want, it's more um, restorative. We're just making sure that they're not losing any of their mobility or self-care skills. Again, like I said, because there's challenges for them in this environment. Um, So it's not as definitely is not as much of a focus on physical rehabilitation as if someone was in a skilled nursing facility or anything, but we still do address the functional needs of the seniors as well. Okay. So when a patient comes into your unit, is the participation in OT services voluntary or mandatory? It's voluntary. (laughs) Um, We do not force anybody to do anything and potentially make a situation worse. Um, Right. With the setup, they, um, there are groups throughout the day for on both units, the adults and the seniors. Um, When, and it's not, they're not required to go to the groups. The groups are in the, the, I'm sorry, the groups are all ran by one of the therapists, um, OT, art, or rec therapy. Um, But they're encouraged by everyone, the doctors, the nurses, social work, everyone encourages group participation, but it's not mandatory. And when um, everyone comes in, they are evaluated. We do interdisciplinary evaluation where they can be evaluated by the OT or the rec therapist. And um, that can look different also. If we're able to interview the person, we interview them. But then if we're not able to for behavioral reasons, then it might just be a chart review. So everyone is evaluated. um, And then most people participate in groups to some extent or another, but not everyone. And it's not required. And it doesn't doesn't impact their their discharge. Just because someone doesn't go to group does not mean they're going to not be able to discharge. And we, I should say, we also do um, individual treatments as well, especially with the seniors. And um, if staffing allows and if our census is low, then we do try to do individual treatments as well. But a lot of the focus is on the group activity. Okay, so if you do get the opportunity to speak with uh, one of the clients one-on-one and do like an interview evaluation, what types of questions are you kind of asking and do you use any types of assessments during that process as well? The initial evaluation with the, the interdisciplinary vow, that's just something that was created long before I started there. It's not a, it's not a you know, commonly used tool or anything, but we're just looking at, you know, the reason for the assessment, why they're there. We are looking at their self-care, um, you know, for the more um, common issues with the seniors, how are they doing with self-care? But then even with the adults, Um, you know, is is their depression causing them to have a hard time just getting up and taking a shower, eating? So we're still looking, we're addressing self-care with the adults who are, you know, physically capable of carrying those things out. It's just for whatever's going on with their mental health, they're not able to carry those things out. But we're we're looking at their cognition also. um, And, and, you know, more than just are they alert and oriented times four, we also want to see how they're interacting with others. Um, if we're noticing any, um, anything with their mood, any behaviors, and we're looking at their leisure interests, um, any religious beliefs that we might need to be aware of, and um, trying to run through the eval here in my head, mm-hmm. and, and, and physical also, um, either 
physical diagnoses, you know, medical conditions, and just if any functional physical problems, because even the adults, you know, more of our physical impairments, of course, are with the seniors, but with the adults, we still see adults that maybe have MS or have had a CVA or have a broken leg, you know, so we still do have um, some more typical physical functioning that we need to address occasionally with the adults. Pretty comprehensive, both like mental and physical yes. evaluation. Um, with the seniors, though, with we do have to do further testing sometimes with them for um, they're called OT functional assessments. And where you have to do that sometimes to help determine the best placement for them at time of discharge. If it's somebody who had previously been living independently and we think there might be a need for placement or 24 hour care or at least having home health come into the home then OT will do those functional assessments. Um, I like to use the SLUMS, the St. Louis University Mental Status Exam, I believe. Um, the Allen Cognitive on the screen is something we use a lot. And then I pull from the KELS. I don't do a full KELS, but I do pull from that. So are there any particular models or frames of reference that help guide your treatment or that you find helpful with this population? Um, yes, we see um, CBT is, of course, a big focus that has been around for a long time. And more recently, um, where I'm working, they've been focusing more on DBT. Now, I do have to say this is this progress has been slowed with COVID. We were supposed to have training and stuff to get us all a little more up-to-date on DBT, that has had to been put off at this time. Um, but then myself personally, I also focus a lot um, on person, environment, occupation. I like, that's something that, um, that I just like to use personally. It's not necessarily one that's, you know, adopted by the whole department. Yeah, I think all of those are very appropriate. And, and really with frames of references and models, you know, especially after you've been a practicing OT for a long time, that might not be something that you're continuously reflecting on. It's just kind of more innate in your practice. But and it's very eclectic. And I'm sure there's lots of other things I'm using and I just don't know it. So. <laughs> right, sure. Yeah, it's kind of more like a student question to ask. But I think it's important because it kind of supports a new graduate coming out into the field and, oh, and yeah. just trying to keep them in check and making sure that they're exploring all the different facets that support occupational engagement. So I really like to ask, but I feel like every seasoned OT is just kind of like, well, technically, I think I use these different ones. And yes, it is very so. eclectic. And I'm, I'm sure there's frames of reference out there that I'm not even familiar with anymore. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, so you talked a little bit about your treatment sessions, mm -hmm. especially with um, seniors, but I'm curious what a one-on-one -on -one treatment session would maybe look like with um, an adult individual. So like just one-on-one, -on -one, someone that you had the opportunity to work with. This like, are you using worksheets? Or are you primarily relying on discussion? Are you engaging in activity? If it's a one-on-one, -on -one, um, and I honestly don't do as much one-on-one -on -one with the adults, some of the other therapists do, but... Um, excuse me, um, one of my focuses, like I had mentioned, I'm also a certified yoga teacher. I really like to do a lot of work with meditation, mindfulness, some very gentle yoga. Um, and that's something that I've sort of been, that's kind of my thing, we'll say. And um, sometimes people request it and everybody's at different levels. So sometimes I might pull out a smaller group and just work with a couple people that are at a, in a similar place and are able to sort of participate in it at the same level. Um, but I know like the different disciplines have done different things with the individual groups or I mean, individual sessions, I'm sorry, with um, the adults. That's just not something I do as much of. Okay. And what about like group activities? So obviously you can do mindfulness mm -hmm. and yoga and stuff like that with them. But do you also do things um, like leisure or more is that definitely. more so left up to the rec therapist? No, it's um, a lot of the groups, you might not even be able to tell who's rec therapy, who's OT, who's art therapy. And I'm not saying that right. we're all complete, you know, completely interchangeable, but we all do um, many of the similar activities, but just maybe have our own perspective on it. But we do have workbooks for each of the patients. Um, sometimes we're going over the workbooks in the group, but it's also something that they can work on on their own. And whether we're using the workbook or not, those things can cover um, 
coping skills, anger management, um, just kind of looking at resources too, you know, um, uh, free resources in the community, making sure people are aware of things that, that are available to them. Um, we, we might be going over like um, self-care, like just kind of assessing different areas of self-care and where areas that they might need to work on. Um, and definitely leisure activities, just all kinds of games or uh, trivia. I like to pull up some trivia on my cell phone. And, and I find personally that TV trivia is one that a lot of people from all different ages and backgrounds can participate in. That's TV seems to be a common ground. Um, and let's see. And we, and we do have a community meeting every morning. That one's less therapeutic, but it is still part of being on the unit, part of the um, their daily routine of sort of going over the plans for the day, the expectations of the unit and um, introducing the different groups, making sure everyone's aware of their day. Um, trying to think, cause I know there's more. Okay. And um, also we do the, some, you know, that basic original OT stuff, the crafts, the OT task group, and we're looking at cognition and how they're able to, um, figure out and accomplish a task, how they're able to deal with multi-steps and, you know, where the, where the breakdown is, um, which is really awesome because that goes back to the root of OT. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of variety that you guys implement for intervention. I, I am curious, though, with the game specifically, mm -hmm. how, how do you kind of conduct that? Like, do you involve the clients in, like, active roles? Like, so if you're playing Uno, do you have someone that's the dealer or maybe someone who keeps track of the scoring? Or do you pretty much um, lead that and then their focus is more on just like participating in, in the fun part of it? it? It's that it really varies a lot. It's a good question. And that's part that's where you do sort of have to assess each group. Um, if if it's a group that are capable of doing that, um, then, yeah, we definitely want them to help out, you know, dealing or taking score, pulling the questions, take, you know, stuff like that. But um, sometimes there, that might be a situation where you might lead to arguments if you do that. So really dependent on the group and the activity, but yes, we like to involve the patients as much as we can and them sort of running or leading it. But again, that's sort of difficult right now with, um, COVID because we're having to do much less hands-on things and much and nothing where they're handing things to each other, you know, sharing supplies. So that is limited at this point, too. Right. Yeah. COVID has affected everything, yeah. it seems yeah. like. So, uh, I can imagine it has changed the way that you're able to to implement OT with all yes, of them, for sure. Definitely. Um, so what are some resources that you have found particularly helpful for treatment planning? You know, like... I their go-to websites that you go to or books, workbooks that you like to use? Well, we'd have the workbook that I mentioned, and that's just a workbook that, um, that our department had come up with, and it's kind of modified every once in a while. Um, and I am involved in several Facebook groups for OTs and mental health. Um, I, one of the uh, OT that I job share with, I'm still relatively new in this area. Um, I've been there um, about a year now, but part-time and all the other therapists I work with have been there for years and they are all fabulous. They're all helpful with giving me ideas or just modeling. I'll see them doing something. I'm like, wow, what is that? I, I want to do that and, or, you know, do that or modify it to fit my needs or whatever. Um, but a lot of it has definitely come from my peers. Um, Pinterest, I can go down that Pinterest rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> and websites and just different books. And a lot of it, it does come from the books and the materials that, that we already have on the unit. So I am lucky coming into a unit that has um, a long established therapy program. Yeah, I know. I personally get a lot of treatment stuff. I mean, obviously I'm not out in the field yet, but for clinicals, like the Facebook group, mm -hmm. just like mentors from afar is kind of gives us a unique experience to learn new things that you would have never even thought right of. so yeah so kind of going off of that are there any certifications or continuing ed that you would recommend an ot acquire if they want to work in this setting 
I wish there were more. Um, I'm kind of struggling yeah. with that myself. Like I said, I've only been in this area for about a year. Um, DB, DBT, as I mentioned, would be a good area, um, but that's that's a costly and quite time-consuming commitment. But if you can find um, CEUs on that, I know there was a workshop going around, but again, COVID, I think that's been on hold. Um, and then Tipa, Tipa Snow, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she's sort of the guru on dementia. So she, um, we pull a lot from Tipa Snow's teachings on this um, senior unit. But yes, I'm always watching for continuing ed in the mental health area. <laughs> Yeah, it's always so disappointing to me when I go to look up different resources and I'm trying to find things for mental health or just these non-traditional areas and, mm -hmm. and there's so little out there. Right. I, I get so bummed about it. Because right. I'm like I want to learn more. I know other people want to learn more, yes. but I guess that's what makes it non-traditional, right? right. There's not much out there already. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and so actually jumping back a little bit to like intervention planning, mm -hmm. um, do you get time to plan for those things or do you generally have to do that off of the clock in your free time? Um, I'm this, I'm lucky in this setting that we actually typically do have time for planning again with COVID we've, you know, we've had staff overload and our, um, so as everyone knows, the world is just different right now, but typically um, plan, I have a, a sufficient time for planning and I have other um, team members available, like I said before, to kind of get some ideas from or bounce ideas off of. But very little of it, I would say, is on my own time. And that is typically, like I said, it's that Pinterest rabbit hole where I just start looking into things. But I, I wouldn't even consider that you know, work. You know, I, I, I'm not disappointed that I'm doing that off the clock. Right, more that's just just developing your own bucket of tricks yeah. as an OT, you know, developing that on your own yeah. and, and, you know, being an OT, most of us love it. So and you it's, know, it's, it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's fun and it's free. And <laughs> So kind of going into the challenges of this setting. So I've read in the literature that lack of sufficient time for treatment can be a limitation for OT's role in psychiatric inpatient settings. Have you experienced this at all? Well, I would say that this is less so of a problem in this environment than in other environments. I do feel like we have more sufficient time to do what we need to do in meeting patients' needs. Um, how Again, we're not even discussing the COVID time because that's a whole different situation. Um, but there are times I do, I do realize too that if we... Um, if our staffing level was higher, then there are more things that we could offer. But as far as what I'm currently doing and expected to do, I do feel like for the most part, I have sufficient time. And I'm thankful for that. <laughs> yeah, because you were mentioning that uh, sometimes they're there for like 72 hours mm -hmm. or up to like, you know, maybe, maybe seven days, at least for the adult mm -hmm. population. Um, and, you know, a week even at most isn't a lot of time. Do you feel like you're really able to make a significant difference during that time? It really depends on the person. Um, and it depends on why they're there. Um, in some cases we, and again, since it's acute, we're not trying to, um, we know this isn't going to be lasting the lasting changes they need. A lot of people do need, you know, services beyond the acute inpatient stay, but we definitely have a good opportunity to really meet some of those basic needs initially for people that are open to it. And for people that are ready and open to participating, they can definitely learn some good skills. Okay. Now, so after you do the intervention or spend time with them, you know, there's always documentation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So for documenting on groups, do you typically individualize each note for each client or do you just have like a general outline that you kind of copy and paste for like the specific activities you're doing? So like if you're doing a yoga activity, do you just kind of do the same note for everybody or are you making individual observations and documenting that? Right. It's a hybrid of both. Um, we have a template for, I have a template specifically for the um, self-care group where I might do yoga and meditation. So I have a basic template that pops up um, and then I'll add a little bit more information, but then I do add some information for each specific patient. Um, and the way I'm doing that is I'm looking at um, 
I want to include information like if the doctor needs to know how this patient is doing in group, they need to know if there was any type of behaviors, if what they were, or if there were no behaviors. I might just document, you know, no behavioral concerns noted, you know, patient calm and cooperative. Um, so really, I just want to target any progress or lack of progress I'm noticing um, and anything that the doctor would really need to know to help determine if they're progressing or not. And I also like to add if they discuss, um, you know, like a specific interest or something they like, I like to add that in a note so that other therapists might see that, you know, and we can all keep in mind some of their leisure interests and so we can plan accordingly at future sessions. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So do many of your clients continue to receive care post-discharge from the acute unit? Or do you lot do you see a lot of readmission? Um, well both. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> after um once discharged from the acute unit, everyone is followed up um by a psychiatrist. But during the stay, a lot of our focus of the entire team um is to help decide like what where does this where's this person gonna discharge to? Um, you know, do, are they gonna need um are they going to need to go to a shelter? Or are they going to need inpatient chemical dependency treatment? Um, are they returning home, but they're going to, they might need um, outpatient services or partial day services? So we're really looking at that throughout the, their entire stay. And then social work helps to set up those community-based services um, for, for, the, for discharge planning. So once they're discharged from the unit, they have the follow-up with a psychiatrist, but then they're transitioned to the community-based programs. And then, yes, unfortunately, we do see a lot of people. Uh, we do have a lot of readmissions. Um, and a lot of it is just with um, chronic mental illness. You know, it's not going to be cured. We're just trying to help stabilize the person. Um, and as I'm sure you know, with a number of people, once they start feeling better, they think they don't need the medication, so they quit taking the medication and then they decompensate or um, maybe they're self-medicating with um, controlled substances and that's caught, you know, leads to another need for um, being admitted again to the acute unit. Um, so yes, readmission can be a common thing. Do you think that the quality or the availability of community uh, mental health uh, services also plays a role in some of the readmissions? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I wish there was um, more out there. Obviously, um, there are people with very specific needs and um, we know which kind of types of programs might be helpful for them, but it might come down to a financial issue or waiting list, um, you know, or just availability of such programs in our region. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a lack of resources out there. Yeah, the waiting list is really interesting to me because as I mentioned, I have like very little experience in this area as a student. And um, I remember talking about a handful of our clients and being told that, oh, well, there's a waiting list. So they're going to be here for a few extra days or they're actually going to travel to a whole nother city yeah. in order to get it. And, you know, that obviously isn't available for everyone. And some people really, you know, need that family support or their their social circle right. uh, to support them. And so like relocating them, that can actually be like a really big yeah. thing, you know, and I, I would imagine it would impact their motivation to stay at that secondary location as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting that you mentioned that because I forgot all about that. And, um, you know, it, it's very sad, you know, that it's like that and that there's not enough resources out there for those that are needing right. it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so in the literature, I also saw that there's a lot of discussion about how, you know, the role of OT in this particular setting is often poorly understood by other health professionals and by their clients. And so, Although like the treatment of OT, you know, like a lot of the professionals value it and appreciate it, it's not really necessarily understood. Like you said, you know, sometimes you can hardly tell the difference between art or rec therapy from you because on the outside it looks the same. But, you know, we all know that we're all doing different things. We have different goals, different aspects that we're looking at. Do you feel like you've experienced that personally where you felt kind of misunderstood as an OT in that setting? I'm lucky in this setting that I do feel like on um, my unit that the role of occupational therapy is understood. 
Um, especially with the seniors, you know, they, um, it's understood that, you know, OTs are there to also assess um, with mobility and ADLs, all, all their self-care needs. Um, and they do, I feel like our staff do get that we're not just doing leisure. We're not just there to entertain them. Um, they do get that we're also addressing coping skills and social skills, um, self-care, self-help. So I, I'm sure there's some people that don't quite get it, but for the most part, I feel like we are understood. Okay. So if, if a person was serving as an OT at a facility and they felt misunderstood, what are some different ways that you think they could help facilitate better understanding? You know, like, would you think that doing an in-service for their, you know, professional peers would be appropriate? Or do you think it's really about like just making strong documentation? I think for me, and it could, could just be my personal approach, um, just trying to do as much training as you can with people in the moment um, or just letting, if you you know, hear about something that's going on, you can say, well, hey, as an OT, I'm able to address that. And just a little bit of education here and there, um, you know, not pushing it on anybody, not trying to make someone um, feel be that they're being disciplined or anything lectured at, but, you know, just to try to address things as they come up and just making it clear, like what we can do and how many different, the different roles that we can address. As OTs, we are so used to explaining our role. So it just starts to come out naturally in conversation mm -hmm. to advocate. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I honestly think like informal advocacy is the best type. Informal advocacy and informal education, mm -hmm. you know, like you said, where people feel like they're being lectured at or told to do something differently or right. to see something a different way. Just like that casual mm -hmm. approach of like, oh, hey, like I heard you talking about this person, you know, would you mind if I tried right. this? You know, like that's what we do. Yep. <laughs> so I think that's great advice. So I know there's probably a lot of challenges mm -hmm. in this setting, but overall, what do you find to be the most challenging about working in this setting? Um, one of the things that comes to mind is, um, like I've mentioned, we do have a lot of freedom, a lot of flexibility, and I do have more time to address needs in this environment that I have in other environments. But it, we still have, um, we, we aren't able to off, offer like dual track programming, just meaning, you know, we obviously have people at functioning at very different levels and we're trying to provide groups that we need to adapt, which of course is what OTs do, but, you know, modify each group to meet the needs of people that are functioning at very different levels. Um, you know, our, in one group, we might have someone who maybe has a developmental delay and we also have somebody who runs a corporation. And so they're just at very different, um, they're, they're coming from very different places. And so that could be a challenge where it would be great if we did have the staffing and the resources to sort of offer dual track programming where one group might be going to this, you know, this nine o'clock group and this one's going to another nine o'clock group. But that's a challenge that we're not able to really address right now. So kind of going off of that, um, what's one of the most valuable lessons you have learned about working with this population and within this setting? One big one is just that mental health can happen to anyone, anywhere. There's no board limits. There's, you know, it doesn't matter about how much money you make, your education, your background, your family. It can happen to anyone. And it doesn't matter how much money you have. Money's not going to fix it. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great lesson for people to hear, honestly, because, well, I'm a firm believer that anybody, like everybody should care about their mental mm -hmm. health, even if you don't recognize or feel that you have like a mental health issue. It's just something kind of to monitor just as much as your physical health. So I think that's definitely a great lesson. Mm -hmm. to apply. Definitely. So enough about the challenges. I want to talk about some of the really great stuff. Uh, I want to know what is your favorite part about working as an OT on an inpatient psych unit? Well, I, it's, there's, to me, it just seems like there's so much more freedom and that you can address the patient's needs as, and those needs can change daily. Um, and you have so much more flexibility with the types of activities you can um, engage with the patients either independently or in a group setting. Um, and like, it's, you know, a lot of it's fun. A lot of times you're playing games, you know? Um, and I also like to be able to really use yoga and mindfulness in the setting. 
I've been able to do that more so than other settings that I've been in. Um, and I've definitely had a lot of positive feedback um, from people from all different backgrounds that have never done yoga or mindfulness before and give it a try and decide that they kind of like it. Yeah, I think yoga is one of those things that's it's a little intimidating to look at. <laughs> but once you give it a try and you see that it's not quite as difficult, and there's a lot of different levels of um levels of expertise that you can go off of. And so I think it's really great that you're introducing that to many people because it has so many different benefits. Um, and so I, that's really I great. I always preface it with this is very basic, gentle chair yoga. You know, I don't want people to not come because they think it's going to be, you know, require a lot of flexibility or strength. And I just do very basic, gentle, usually chair stuff with just a little bit of standing. Also because you're you have a diverse group of people and you don't want to put someone in a, in a physical position where they are, they feel vulnerable or awkward around other people or anything. So it's, there's a lot to be mindful with yoga and mindfulness in this setting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So one of my favorite things about OT are those moments where you're like, wow, I'm like really making a difference. Like, I'm, you just get so excited because you're like, wow, this is working. So can you share a story about a time when you felt validated as an OT in this setting? And it comes back to the yoga and the meditation, really. Um, just seeing some people that have, you know, that you would never think would be interested in trying yoga. Because again, like I said, it's, it's voluntary. Um, I've had you know, patients who have done plenty of time in prison and have been selling drugs on the street. I've never done yoga before, and I have had some some of those patients who do great. They, I can see they're really putting in effort. They're trying, and they're even able to laugh at themselves a little bit if they mess up a pose and just really getting something out of it um, and just hearing the comments from them, things like, you know, I didn't even realize my muscles were that tense or, you know, I just I feel um, like my mind isn't racing as much. And along those lines, um, I definitely get a lot of positive feedback from the, the staff, the nurses um, and the social work. They have, they've relayed that they like that I'm doing the yoga or that they've heard the patients like talking about how much they like it. And um, the doctors are wanting more yoga. They want me to be able to do more yoga groups, which would be great. So I'm curious, since yoga has been such a great hit, do you have materials or different recommendations that you make uh, to the clients so that they can continue it once they are discharged? Like, do you have like uh, printouts or is there a website that you tell clients they could go to so that they can continue it? I just recommend my big thing is I let people know, obviously, like there's yoga everywhere. There's there's classes, there's free online stuff. You know, it can be available to anyone. You don't have to worry about, you know, financial limitations because you can find free stuff. But I just tell people to definitely look for something that's meant for beginners. Um, and I tell people too, like, if you try something and you don't like it, try a different class or a different teacher. You just might not um, do well with that specific teacher or you might not like that style of yoga. Um, so I just encourage people to sort of try different things um, at a basic beginner level but I don't have any specific handouts or anything like that. Well, I mean, YouTube is pretty accessible yeah. to, to most people. So <laughs> that makes sense that you wouldn't necessarily give them handouts, mm -hmm. but um, I think that's good advice, letting them know like, Hey, if you try one or two and you don't like it, yeah. keep looking, find what you do like, or, you know, you could tell them what type of things you were doing with them. That way they know what mm -hmm. to kind of look for. I think, I think that is really the takeaway yeah. because like we said, you know, there's so many different types of yoga and so many different skill levels that they could go home and just be like, Oh, what was I thinking? I can't really do this on my own, right. you know? So, the app, so that's great. And we'll discuss like the meditation apps out there. Again, I'm not trying to sell any certain one or push anyone. And, but um, there's frequently also other patients that have done yoga and they, or they have some of the meditation apps and they can start some conversations and they can make recommendations to, their peers also, because that's a big part of the unit is just the, um, the, the peer development and the social socialization on the group. So it's nice to, that that can be a way for people to start talking too. Right. Sure. Peer support is huge, especially, you know, it could 
your peers can be so relatable, you know, so sometimes you'll hear things from, from your peers more so than you will from, you know, instructors or healthcare providers or anyone else, you know. And for patients to see like somebody that looks so differently from them and they come from such a different background, whatever that may be, but to see that they have similar problems and that they can truly understand what that person's going through, even though they seem to have nothing else in common. Right. Yes. It goes a long ways for them to talk with each other for sure. I agree. Okay. Uh, So more so of a personal question, but I'm curious if you can work in any other setting or with any other population without any limits, what would it be and why? For me, it's not necessarily setting, setting specific, but it's more um, the concept that I would like to, as an occupational therapist, be able to work more with mindfulness and working with people from all different backgrounds on the impact that mindfulness has on our daily life and carrying out all different occupations. Um, And I am interested in taking mindfulness to like the domestic violence shelters and um, all different kinds of settings, you know, the community-based settings. Um, And we do actually, I haven't mentioned, but um, separate from my unit, but at our hospital, we do also have a day treatment program. Um, And I would love to be able to eventually do some cross training and do a little bit of the um, mindfulness and yoga work with the um, day treatment program as well. So just knowing the, you know, as an OT, just knowing how much mindfulness can impact every part of our life and including our progress in whatever type of um, therapy services we might need for whatever um, the issue is at hand. Mindfulness can help with all of that. Yeah, I completely agree. Mindfulness is such a useful tool. One of our classmates actually is doing her capstone on mindfulness mm-hmm. uh, with the graduate students mm-hmm. at our school. Um, so yeah, I think it's really great. And sometimes people say, oh, that's really more just psych, you know, mm-hmm. but, but I totally disagree. Cause yeah. like you said, mindfulness can be implemented with pretty much any occupation yeah. that you use. Yeah. And I think it's so great because at its core, it's really more simple right? and it's, it's easy to implement no matter what's going on. So you could be actively moving or you could just be stationary, you know? So like, it's such a useful tool. And I think that everyone regardless can benefit from learning some of those skill sets for sure. So I think that's great that you have an interest in, you know, utilizing that more with different people and, and possibly in the community and in the day program as well. Could you tell us a little bit more about the day program? Do you know much about how that functions and what's available in that? Um, I know some basics, definitely. Um, It's frequently um, our patients that might have been on the acute unit might discharge to the day treatment program, but that's not the only way other other patients just um, from, you know, the community can come to the day treatment program and not have to have been in acute. But um, so the patients come um, five days a week, and I believe it's about 8.30 to 2.30 or 3 o'clock. So they're there throughout much much of the day, um, and they have groups on the hour. Um, There's different groups. There's there's a different art therapist that's there. They're meeting with um, psychiatrists. There's some one-on-one work, but most of it's that group setting again because that group dynamic is so important. Um, and part of that is the OT task group where they're again, working on like the crafts the ceramics and the woodwork and all that. Um, and I observed a little bit on the unit, but that's something hopefully post COVID that I'll be eventually be able to do some cross training and get more involved in that program as well. I have to say, I've always been so curious about these woodworking shops because you hear about them and you know it's been in the history of OT for so long. Mm -hmm. And I used to do that kind of stuff with my dad when I was young. So I'm like, God, you know, I actually think that's something I would really love to do as an OT is like go in there and do a woodworking shop, you know? Well, and what's ironic is mental health is the origins of occupational therapy, but unfortunately it is a non-traditional setting. I believe it's like about 2% of OTs are in mental health, which is just kind of sad when that's the, you know, the origins of the career. But yes, it's it's the, all the woodworking and the ceramic and painting, the sun catchers and all that. And, and yes, that is the, you know, the origins of occupational therapy. And it's, it still happens. <laughs> 
you know, you said that there's like only about 2%. And that's also the statistic that I found mm-hmm. for mental health. But we also have to remember that we're always implementing mental health in all kinds of different settings. People like, yeah, and people like you that have taken on the challenge to do it more as a main focus. I just think it's really cool because you're the front runners. And I mm-hmm. honestly think that the future of OT is going to be more heavily mental health focused. It's so that's just my opinion. I, I like your opinion. And I hope that <laughs> I hope to see that happen. Two <laughs> percent just is like so shockingly low to me. Like I was just so surprised that um, so few people work in mental health, even though like we had like an entire class yep. and we learned so much and like you kind of get excited about it. Yep. But then just there's the opportunities are lower and then you just kind of fall into other yes. settings. And like we, we mentioned, like I definitely I, there needs to be more of a presence in occupational therapy and mental health. But again, as we mentioned, we, there also needs to be more services for mental health in general. Um, but just that for students, even if you don't plan on working in mental health, in a mental health role, that training is still so important because people with schizophrenia still end up in rehab or, you know, um, like a a skilled nursing facility or in the hospital, you know, just knowing that background and being able to have the, the, um, the skills to address their, their needs along with, whatever type of mental health issues might be going, going along, or maybe their family member, you know, so you're, you, you're going to be dealing with all different types of walks of life and need to be ready for whatever type of mental health background you may be facing also. Now, Melanie, can you remind me which state are you residing in at this time? Ohio. Ohio. In Ohio, are OTs uh, recognized as qualified mental health professionals? Because you know, they are in some states and not in others. Do you know? I really don't know. Okay. I'll have to look that up because I'm not sure either. I know. Um, so I'm originally from Florida. I'm currently in Colorado, but mm-hmm. in Florida, uh, they're definitely not recognized as qualified mental health professionals at this time. So I was just wondering if you had that privilege yeah, or not. I don't know. You know. They're trying to make way, but it's, <laughs> it's a slow process. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I'll have to look it up too. <laughs> Yeah, there's a website, actually, I could send it to you if you're interested. Yeah. That'll take you right to it where you can see. All right, Melanie. Well, I actually think that's all the questions I had for you. Kate, did you have any other questions for her? No, I think that's it. But thanks so much for coming. I really learned a lot through this podcast. And I hope that people who listen to it also learn as much as oh, I well, I hope I did the uh, this this. Um, I hope I did mental health justice and and hit a lot of the highlights because I'm sure I left out a lot of important points as well. But um, yeah, I'm glad to help out with this in any way I can because it is very interesting and very different from a lot of um, OT roles that you might be going into. Yeah, Melanie, actually, I think you were great. I learned a lot as well. Um, And what a big takeaway I'm taking from it is that my limited experience that I had before, even though there were similarities from what you described, there were also stark differences. And so I think anyone listening to this or anyone interested in mental health needs to keep in mind that each individual unit is going to be different. There's going to be different people on the team. There's going to be different services available. Um, And just like the populations, you know, that affects how we implement it as well. So I think you... You were very informative for your experience in particular, and I really appreciate your time and your insight into it. It's only solidified my interest in mental health even more, so (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Yeah, good. I'm glad to help.